Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Max Minute, where we look at what remains of our gallant scouts in Mad Max to the Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 32, which begins with the Lord Humongous shifting blame, and it ends with Wes narrowly avoiding a deadly weapon. Yesterday, I promised that we were going to talk a little bit about Max Phipps and Kjell Nilsson at the top of the minute, so that is exactly what we're going to do. The toady, in his fabulous furry hat, is played by Max Phipps. Max Phipps was born on November 18th, 1939, in Parks, New South Wales. He actually passed in August 6th, 2000, in Sydney because of cancer. Which is too bad. Max Phipps was born as Maxwell John Phipps. He started his acting training in Sydney at the age of 21 at the Ensemble Theater. In the Sydney Opera House's inaugural season, he played Harry Bustle in What If You Died Tomorrow. In London, he reprised this role as well as appearing in Don's Party. He played Dr. Frankenfurter in the Rocky Horror Show in Melbourne from 1975 to 1977. And I don't remember where I read it, but I remember reading somewhere that Max Phipps was like Australia's favorite Dr. Frankenfurter. Okay. Yeah, there were ads that say, come to the Melbourne Theater and see why a quarter of a million people have seen Max Phipps as Dr. Frankenfurter. There are some really low-quality videos that people mm. have uploaded onto YouTube because it was between 1975 and 1977 that he did it. Yeah, that's tough. Of him up on stage doing the routine. I'd be very interested to talk to someone who is a longtime fan of the Rocky Horror Show and ask them, okay, Max Phipps, Tim Curry. I'm not sure you can really compare the two of them. One is the stage show, one is the movie, and I think he also did some stage. I'd be very interested to have that conversation with a fan of the Rocky Horror Show. I'm not even sure I've seen that movie all the way through. Really? If I have, it's been a very long time. We're going to have to sit down and watch it again. Oh, our list is growing. (laughs) Speaking of the list, Max Phipps, like everybody else on IMDb, has a list of the things he's best known for. Obviously, Road Warrior is the top one. The next one in the list is 1980 stir which you may find familiar because we brought it up when we were talking about sid halen back in minute 27 it's the prison riot movie oh okay yep next up on the list is 1979's thirst where he played a character named mr hodge thirst is a horror movie directed by rod hardy written by john pinkney if you couldn't figure it out from the title it's a vampire movie all right yeah (laughs) the poster is just big old vampire teeth the final movie in the top four best known for the last one is 1983's Savage Islands, which is an action-adventure comedy. It was directed by Ferdinand Fairfax and written by, and uh, this is an interesting team, John Hughes, yes, that John Hughes, as well as David O'Dell and Lloyd Phillips. David O'Dell was a writer on The Muppet Show and The Dark (laughs) Crystal, as well as the Supergirl and Masters of the Universe movie. Lloyd Phillips has been the producer on such movies as Inglorious Bastards, Man of Steel, Twelve Monkeys, Vertical Limit. Big names were on the writing staff for this. Savage Islands also stars Tommy Lee Jones and Michael O'Keefe. Max Phipps actually got third billing on that list. So, you know, it's like a pirate 
E movie. Not really a pirate movie. It's more like a privateer movie. Moving on to The Lord Among Us. He was played by Kjell Nielsen. It's K-J-E-L-L-N-I-L-S-S-O-N. How did you figure out how to pronounce it? Is that um, just a guess or did you like look it up? Oh, that's me just assuming that's how it's pronounced and pushing forward with it without shame. Okay. <laughs> Nielsen was born in Gothenburg, Sweden. He was was an Olympic class weightlifter and moved to Australia in 1980 to help train Swedish athletes that were preparing for the Moscow Olympics. While he was in Australia, he met an actress named Kate Ferguson. They were married in Sweden later that year, and then she persuaded him to return to Australia, where he started working in film. His top four films include The Road Warrior and also 1982's The Pirate Movie. <laughs> which just keeps coming up. I just cannot get away from it. In fact, if you've listened to our podcast for any span of time, you'll know how many people worked on both the Mad Max series and in the pirate movie. There are some sources that say that the pirate movie was Nielsen's first film role. However, the Road Warrior filmed sometime between June and August of 1981, and principal photography on the pirate movie didn't begin until November of 1981. So I think we can all see here which one got it first and which one is objectively better. I am starting to soften on my hardline stance that I will not watch the pirate movie. Yeah, I was going to say. I have gotten to the point where if we watch the pirate movie i will sit and i will watch it but i can promise i will not enjoy it i just don't think you can promise that i mean i i i really don't know the, the likelihood of enjoying it but i feel almost obligated to watch it now uh, i watched, now that we've got it with both movies i watched a trailer and i watched a clip it's a musical and so i it's watched a musical i watched one of the songs and i'm like this is so friggin ridiculous I'm not the kind of person who doesn't like musicals just because they're musicals, but the song that I watched, they took Modern Major General from the Pirates of Penzance, and they, like, did their own version of it, changing lyrics around and whatnot, and everyone was very... Wasn't the periodic table? Prancing around or anything like that. No, they didn't oh. sing the periodic table version. Yeah, it's... it's oh, I don't want, but I understand if my wants don't matter. <laughs> 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 the next movie on the list is 1987's The Edge of Power. He played a character named Yorma. The Edge of Power is a political thriller directed by Henry Safran and written by Richard Cassidy. It's centered around a journalist who fabricates a story that a prominent right-wing Australian politician is a Nazi sympathizer, which I guess in the 1980s would be political tragedy. Nowadays doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. Anyway, getting off that soapbox to continue on with the on-topic stuff. The fake story in the movie sparks a revenge plot where someone wants to use the journalist as a patsy in a political assassination. It's very thrilling in a political way. The last movie on his known for list is 1987's Hard Knuckle, where he plays the bouncer. Now, Hard Knuckle is an interesting one. It's rather unique. It is a post-apocalyptic sport movie. Wow. Which... We don't need to watch that. I say, we've already seen one. Yep. <laughs> Salute of the Jugger will, will come out two years after this. Hard Knuckle was directed by Lex Marinos and written by Gary Day. The basic plot centers on the most popular sport in the post-apocalyptic wasteland of Australia. 
called Hard Knuckle, which is kind of a bloodier form of pool. If you, like, want to, say, scratch or make an error, they'll, like, cut off a section of your finger. You can keep playing or you can lose, and if you lose, bad stuff happens, and if you win, you get stuff. The movie follows the main character, Harry, played by Steve Bisley. <laughs> who is a pool hustler, and he wants to beat the hard-knuckle champ Top Dog, played by the movie's writer, Gary Day, because Steve Bisley wants his motorcycle back. And really? that's that's the story of the movie. So they're, wow. they're playing... That is... That is goose. They're playing pool to play for a pink slip, I guess. <laughs> it makes sense that they would get the giant Swedish guy as the bouncer for that movie, because he is so large. Getting back to the minute at hand, though, we start off with the Lord Among Us. He He's at his loudspeaker, and he has said that he is very disappointed because, again, they have made him unleash his dogs of war. This is what we call deflection. He is... Yeah, it's, it's pretty nasty. Yeah, he's basically blaming the victim for his violence. He's trying to psychologically make them believe that the violence that they have experienced and the loss that they have experienced is not because of anything that the Lord Humongous chose to do. It's just a natural consequence. That there is nothing the Lord Humongous could have done to perform any differently. This is just the natural way of things. And that how could he not kill or brutalize or take captive these scouts that were sent out from the compound because, you know, that's just what happens and, you know, the compound people should have thought better before they did that. I agree that this speech is a bad speech and he is psychologically manipulating the people that he is speaking to. But from his point of view, they are in a state of war. So the scouts that were sent out were fair game. In a state of war, mm -hmm. they had a right to attack those scouts. And the compound should have realized that the marauders, again, in a state of war, have the right, well, I guess right is a strong word, but of course they're going to take out the scouts. And it was foolish for them to send out the scouts. But back to the correct side of the argument, the state of war was only created by the marauders. Right. I'm trying to remember where I heard something that I want to mention. This idea that if you're in a fight and only one person in that fight thinks that it's a fight, it's not a fight. It's an assault. And I feel that the... People in the compound are not looking at this situation as a war that they need to win. They are seeing it as them defending themselves. They're not in a state of surrender necessarily, but they're in a state of defense. Right. They're not at, going out to attack. Right. At no point have they attacked. Have they been the aggressors? Yeah. At no point did they say, hey, Lord Humongous, let's have a war. Let's both agree that we are going to fight this battle for control of the compound. They were sitting there probably minding their own business, pumping their gasoline, and then Humongous probably just rolled up out of nowhere and decided, okay, we're going to have a war. I wonder if the fact that while they were never the aggressors, the fact fact that they defended themselves with violence plays into that dynamic. From Humongous's point of view, he had the right to take the scouts captive because he had declared a state of war upon the compound and the compound knew it and maybe had not declared a state of war back at them to make it mutual, but they understood that they were under definitive attack. Why on earth would they think that they could send out scouts without them being attacked? But all that being said, 
it's not the compound's fault. Yeah. The Lord Humongous made all those choices. Exactly. In his speech, the words that he is using and the affectations that he is using, he's acknowledging that his horde did all of these terrible things to the scouts that were sent out. He is acknowledging that these are his dogs of war that he has sicked on these innocent people. At the same time, he's trying to prop himself up as a man who can be benevolent, a man who can be reasonable. He stands up, he's very patriarchal, and he says, I am so disappointed that you made this decision because it means that I had to do something. It's classic abuser talk. Yes, it is. Like, if this was in a relationship, it would be like him coming home to a domestic partner and maybe, you know, food isn't prepared or someone's books are still on a table and their response to that is to break some plates or pull their belt off and start hitting people and they will stand there and they will be like, oh, look what you made me do. Yes. And you could say from the abuser's viewpoint, those people should have cleaned up their book bags or made sure that dinner was ready. But it doesn't make it right. I think that's why I've been so quiet as you were talking. It's just I don't want to see it from the Lord Humongous's point of view. I think it's admirable that you're exploring that. Well, I think we're talking about two different situations. We're talking about a state of war versus the speech he's giving from the point of view of an abuser. I think those are two very different things. I think they're more similar than, than you think, though. I think the main difference is scale. I think he's making them similar because he's using the state of war and connecting it straight to an abusive relationship. I think he's making the connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think-, I think in a state of war, he had the right to attack this, the scouts. Yeah, I, I definitely don't want to go down that way. <laughs> not, You're the one that came up with the abuser analogy. Yeah, I'm I'm not. I didn't even, that wasn't even in my notes. I'm not comfortable with defending the Lord Humongous in any way <laughs> through any sort of explanation of circumstance or anything like that. He's actively trying to demoralize these people yep. and make them feel like all hope is lost. Well, then I'm not even going to bring up if it's right for the people to hoard their gas because you, you're not going to want to talk about that. As a, well, that Not that's, in the context of abuse. That's later in the minute. <laughs> We've only gone through the first couple of sentences. The problem with this minute, and that has nothing to do with the movie itself, it's me. Too many things are happening at once when you're analyzing something minute by minute and you're taking notes and those notes, for me, are chronological. Like, this is happening, this is what I think of it. This yeah. is happening, this is what I think of it makes it really really difficult to take notes yeah because there are three things happening at the same time right and we have talked about one of them let's go through specifically the lord among us's speech so that way we can get that out of the way so he says much of it (laughs) again you have made me unleash my dogs of war look at what remains of your gallant scouts why because you're selfish you hoard your gasoline you will not listen to reason now my prisoners say you plan to take your gasoline out of the wasteland you sent them out this morning to find a vehicle a rig big enough to haul that fat tank of gas what a puny plan i have two thoughts okay the first is they kind of are being selfish the only claim that the compound dwellers have on the compound is that they're physically there well possession is nine tenths of the law there is no law (laughs) that's where there's a problem is there is no law yeah 
I think they are being selfish. What we're lacking in this situation is the context of how yes. the Lord Humongous and the Horde arrive. Because we kind of got it described by the gyro captain. And, that they you know, just showed up. Bruce did an mm. all right job of getting us the background, but he didn't give us enough information. The Lord Humongous really doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that would arrive with this huge violent force stop say hey toady go negotiate for gas he strikes me as more like going back to my game of thrones analogies he's sort of ironborn this idea that they don't sow if they want something they just go and take it him making the statement of like oh you know you hoard your gasoline you don't listen to reason it's i find it very suspect whether or not he actually tried using diplomacy but so before just attacking the compound i can picture him doing a scenario like we're seeing here where he has rolled up with his horde in an intimidating way, stopped just out of weapon range, and over his loudspeaker said something like, give us your gas or we're going to kill you all and just take it anyways. And that was it. Yeah. No negotiation, no diplomacy, no offer to trade, you know, nothing that us as a civilized society would consider appropriate before we just go in and take what we want by force. Yeah. But I can picture him doing the very least that is necessary to be called listening, you know, that they should have listened to reason. Yeah. Presenting reason to the compound. I mean, he does like to talk. I can definitely picture him saying, give us the gasoline or we're going to murder all of you. Right. And like, there that's are... not a negotiation. <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a good offer to lead with if you want to have a profitable exchange of resources. Right. Which he obviously doesn't want, but yeah. he acts like he does. And Papagallo is not the kind of guy, not that we've seen too much of Papagallo, but he's not the kind of guy that's going to kowtow to threats of violence. No, not at all. You know, they have possession of that compound and they are pumping gas for their very reason. And if they have to give away a ton of gas, it's going to delay their end goal, which we're going to find out later on where they want to go with all this and why they want to move out of the area. They aren't in a position to share because it would delay their goal. And the Lord Hungus is saying, okay, you're being selfish. And it's like, yeah, they're being selfish because they're thinking of themselves. And right. in this post-apocalypse, if you're not thinking of yourself, you know, you have less of a chance to survive because well, you are- Well, I disagree with that. Well, you're taking in resources and you're allocating them to other people ahead of yourself. And it's kind of like when you're in an airplane, you have to put the air mask over your own face before, before you, can you put it on someone else. Um, That's a really simplified metaphor, I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's apt. I think I disagree with that because the Lord Humongous has proven that banding together and working together, although they do it in a morally reprehensible way, it is succeeding. They are working together. And these are inhabitants of the wasteland who have formed a society. That's how you survive. Mm. And that kind of leads me into my second point about his speech where he says, what's the line? Um, something about taking it out of the wasteland. What's that line again? He says, now my prisoners say you plan to take your gasoline out of the wasteland. You sent them out this morning to find a vehicle, a rig big enough to haul that fat tank of gas. What a puny plan. I think he's implying that that oil and then gasoline belong to the wasteland. It came from the wasteland. It should serve the wasteland, which there is absolutely an argument to be made there that the wasteland needs to put its own mask on before it can put the mask on the, on others. The wasteland needs to take care of itself first. And these people who are hoarding gasoline want to remove it from the wasteland. You know who you just sounded like? What? The 
Gnome King from Return to Oz, who took all of his emeralds back from the Emerald City because yeah, they because came from they his were mountain. Stolen. Yeah. Especially in this world that doesn't have trade and commerce in much of an official way. It's very like basic. What the society creates needs to stay in the society. What the land creates, I should say, needs to stay in the land. So if like, they have a surplus, that's when you start trading with outside. So when you have a surplus. So in this situation, the Lord Humongous is kind of like Pocahontas, and the compound dwellers are like the Englishmen who are just exploiting the land so they can take it away. Well, I wouldn't compare them with the Englishmen, because I think they are inhabitants of the wasteland. They have a right also to the gasoline, but they don't have an exclusive right to it to remove it from the wasteland. I think what I'm saying is there shouldn't be walls around that compound. They should be producing gasoline for the wasteland, for its inhabitants, which include this horde, Mm. for better or worse. The demands of the wasteland, as far as fuel goes, are not so high that this well is going to run dry. Because they've already pumped thousands of gallons out of the ground. There's enough for everybody, and the compound dwellers are hoarding it. The thing about gasoline, though is that it doesn't just come up out of the ground usable. Like, yes, it's a natural resource, but it has to be refined in order to be usable. And access to gasoline is not necessarily a right. No, they did the work of refining it. Right. But what rights do they have to that pump? I think the right that they have to it is the sweat and effort that they've put into finding it, bringing it into working order and maintaining it. Like they've put their time and their energy into this pump and the reward that they get is the gasoline that it produces. The horde is coming in out of nowhere, contributing nothing and saying, we want it, give it to us or we will permanently end your life. And I certainly don't agree with that. Yeah. I think it should be open for trade. The big question because is... Because that is society. What would the trade. What would the horde have to trade, though? I think they have skills. I think they have hunting skills. I think they have automotive skills. They have basic societal skills. I think we've... Poking fun, we have talked about their sewing skills. Yeah. They have a larger variety of more weather-resistant clothing. So what you're saying is that the, the people in the horde can use those skills that they have to provide goods with which to barter yes. for the gasoline. Yes. Because bartering isn't just goods, though. It's goods and services. Right. So the people in the compound can say, okay, for one 55-gallon drum of gasoline, this is what we want. We want these animal carcasses. We want these tools or resources or find this scrap out in the wasteland. And as you bring it to us, we will give you gasoline. Exactly. Which is, I don't think that's what, I don't think the Horde is willing to do that. I think they I don't think so either, but I think half of that is the Horde's fault and half of that is the compound's fault. I think they are not blameless. I think that's my whole point. They are not blameless, which is why it makes me uncomfortable that you're drawing abuse parallels, because that is not how abuse works. In in an abusive relationship, the person with less power is blameless. Like it, it's the it's the abuser making up reasons to hit the the other person, and that's not what's going on. I well, wow, we've strayed again. <laughs> yeah, I I just don't think it's one sided. I'm very much willing to say that the compound is blameless because they were there no. minding their own business. 
Yes. They were there minding their own business. And then this, these people come in and say, hey, we want to murder you for your resources. And they said, no, we would rather not be murdered for our resources. Can we trade? And I imagine, I imagine that the people no, in the compound nobody ever would, said, can we trade? No, I imagine. Because we don't get to see any of this. We're coming in in right. medias res. We don't know how this Max started. Max came in with a trade deal. And they said, no, he's dead. We're not trading with you. He, tra- he tried to trade rescuing somebody for gasoline. And they said, no. He would have gotten that deal had Nathan lived, though. I don't know about that. I. They seemed pretty adamant to not give him anything. I am pretty sure that when Papa Gallo said your, deal your contract with with, was, was with him, it'll die with him. That was the arrangement. Max said, if I bring you back to the compound, I want gasoline. And Nathan was like, yeah, sure, of course. Max brought Nathan back to the compound, but Nathan wasn't able to fulfill his side of the bargain, which is unfortunate. And that's just how it is. But I imagine, and this is speculation, that had Nathan survived and had the ability to like sit up from that operating table and say, hey, Papa Gallo, I told him he could have gas if he brought me back. Papa Gallo would have said, all right, well, I guess we'll give you some gas and you can get the heck out of here. I feel like the, the compound dwellers are more reasonable. I don't get that vibe. I think the compound dwellers are kind of mean. <laughs> Takeaway is that I don't think the oil and gasoline should be removed from the wasteland because the wasteland needs it. Okay. That was the point from like 10 minutes ago. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's shift gears really quick. Because... Yes, because we have two other things going on at the same time to talk yep. about. So this whole time that the Lord Humongous is speaking, we've got the defiant victim and he's yelling. <laughs> this is like a whole soap opera in and of itself that's he, going on at the same time. He's yelling things like help and kill him now while you have chance and don't listen to him. As he's shouting, you've got the toady trying to shut him up. <laughs> I like, loved this. It was like slapstick. Yeah. Like just was... putting his hand over his mouth, just like hoping he would shut up. If the toady had like a sock that he could stuff a sock into the defiant victim's mouth, that would have worked so much better than just trying to like paw his face closed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and when pawing his face closed doesn't work, he punches him in the gut and the defiant victim stops for a moment. He gets all of the air knocked out of him. As he crumples over, the toady takes his head and cradles his head on his shoulder, kind of like shushing him and say oh everything's all right now you just sleep at that point there's the whole thing where wes shoots a rabbit and the toady sees this as the perfect opportunity to do an object lesson i guess that's the mark of a good hype man that Mm -hmm. he takes every opportunity to prove his point that his person in this case lord humongous is the best person yeah lord humongous says this is the valley of death and wes shoots the rabbit and the toady is like see Nothing can escape. The humongous rules the wasteland. And because the toady steps away from the defiant victim, (laughs) defiant victim stops playing dead for a moment and yells, give them nothing, blow it up. And before he can say give them nothing again, Wes jumps on him and just headbutts him. Yep. Knocks him out cold. And that's kind of the end of the defiant victim. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he gave up he a good fight. He doesn't wake up again? No, I don't think so. All right. I don't think so. The last and final thing is between Wes and I'd say Wes and the feral child, because as the Lord Humongous is standing there speaking, a rabbit runs by and Wes decides to take this opportunity to shoot the rabbit with his little arm mounted crossbow. So he does kind of this quick turn shoot thing. And I'm not entirely sure if they actually killed a rabbit for this. I'm watching it and I'm thinking they could have done it where they just glue an arrow to the side of the rabbit with a string attached and then like yank on that string. So the rabbit spins around in the air. That and then just run 
done it backwards to make it look like he got shot with an arrow. Yeah. I don't know which is more humane, killing the rabbit or just yanking it by a string. I, yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, that sounds awful. I mean, either way, there are too many rabbits in Australia, so they probably just should have shot it and then they can cook it up for dinner. But it's Wes headbutting the defiant victim that finally causes the feral child to pop his head out of his little rabbit hole. Speaking of rabbit holes... That's something we kind of glanced over at the beginning of this minute while we were talking about other stuff. Yep. We get to see that that little hole that the barrel kid crawled into actually did lead somewhere. Yes. It's a very handy little system he's got going on. Yeah. <laughs> he popped up conveniently right in front of where the horde stopped. Mm-hmm. What if the horde had stopped close enough that they could see the hole? Yeah, that probably would have turned out poorly for him. Yes. The whole thing lined up very nicely. Wes headbutts the defiant victim. Defiant victim falls unconscious. And the feral child scrambles out of his hole. And he's got this big metal boomerang. And Mm -hmm. he does a little run up. And he throws the boomerang at Wes. And it flies right at his face. But he's able to duck. And then it swoops up into the air. And we end this minute with Wes looking up into the air at this boomerang flying through the air. I said air like three or four times in that sentence. Well, it's... It's the only thing in the picture, so yeah. yeah. (laughs) We're going to find out tomorrow where that boomerang is going, what happens to it, who it hits, who it doesn't hit. Not so much can be said for the other throws. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Okay. (laughs) The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 30 two of the road warrior see you tomorrow